Hello, welcome to my Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. Spain has these beautiful sort of rolling hillsides. It's these beautiful sort of pale green and dark green plateaus and like these undulating lines of olives in that harsh and beautiful Spanish light. And all of these great companies of olives, the only thing that I can think of to compare it to is companies of angels because there was something about them that it felt it felt like an honor to walk among them. That's this week's guest, Lyndon Panner, who's written a book called The Way of the Gardener, Lost in the Weeds Along the Camino de Santiago. I spoke with Lyndon last week. This week is the second of a two-part podcast, and you're going to love this chat. But first, if you're joining us for the first time, this is a podcast about El Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James. It's a famous pilgrimage across Europe. Pilgrims walk for redemption or adventure, for guidance, or perhaps they are looking for something. Well, what I learned in the course of last week's episode with Lyndon Penner, while you and I might be walking the Camino looking for something, we're often missing everything. The plants along the Camino provide sustenance, a slice of history, colour, scent, a chance to reflect, and a reason to pause, both literally and metaphorically. Take the time to smell the roses. Tennyson wrote, If I had a flower for every time I thought of you, I could walk through my garden forever. Let's go back to Lyndon Penner, and we'll pick it up with a question about chicory. You came across chicory, and you say chicory thrives in difficult conditions, and you say some of us are lucky enough to be like chicory, with deep roots that anchor us and keep us sustained in times of hardship. I just thought that was so fantastic. And Thank you. Now talking to you about your history, you have those deep roots too, right? Oh, that's kind of you. Well, I like to think that I do. Um, you know, chicory is tenacious and very difficult to kill. And, you know, like, and it's, you can hit it with a mower. You can spray it with a herbicide. It will probably come bouncing back. Like it is, um, you know, chicory is nobody's fool. And I rather like that about, about chicory. In fact, I have... You know, lots of gardeners kind of roll their eyes when I say this, but I think you have to have a certain amount of respect for weeds. Um, you know, they occupy a very interesting ecological niche, and they are, you know, like, you know, a dandelion is harder to kill than James Bond. Like, <laughs> you know, that's, we spend millions and millions of dollars in North America every year trying to eradicate them. They're not going anywhere. Like, I love that about dandelions. They're a nuisance sometimes, sure, but they also feed a lot of pollinators. And I mean, they're tough. Chicory's closely related to the dandelion. And I love that about them, that in poor soil, in ugly growing conditions, in like the plant equivalent of the ghetto, they are thriving in heat and drought and lack of nutrients with those big, deep roots and those bright blue, cheery flowers opening every day just to put beauty in the world. There are places that I saw chicory growing in Spain where their beauty could only be described as excessive. And I remember saying to them, thank you, thank you for this, thank you. Um, every day, those bright blue flowers saying, you know, just keep walking, you got this. And it was, it was fabulous. It was just, um, I like it when plants cheer for you. <laughs> I love this, so great. Uh, tell us about figs, because... I did not. I didn't know until reading your book that figs are pollinated by wasps. 
Yes. Um, and in fact, the fig family is its own thing. There are hundreds of species of figs, and most of them have their own unique wasp that pollinates them. So fig wasps are not like hornets. They're not like, you know, the stinging wasps that ruin a picnic. Most of them are extremely tiny and would be easily mistaken for a midge or a fly or something like that. And they are like, and, and a lot of the, the fruiting figs that we eat, like, uh, like Peter's honey or the brown mission figs, um, a lot of them actually do not require pollination in order to actually produce fruit. So they don't even need the wasp at this point in cultivation. Um, but each fig has its own unique species of wasp, including, you know, the fabulous Morton Bay figs that grow so gorgeously in Sydney. Uh, I remember hugging a particularly huge one in, um, Newtown, I think, was the name of the suburb. There's a cemetery there yeah. with a Morton Bay fig that I still think about hugging that tree. That's right. Um, I know exactly where that is. Okay, perfect. Yeah. yeah. Um, that tree and I, we, um, we're friends. So um, I, in fact, I have a picture of myself hugging that tree. Um, but at awesome. any rate, figs, figs are delicious, and they have served us for a very long time. And they are... Um, they're, they're, you know, an ancient survivor. We have some beautiful fossils of figs that exist. And we think, oh, yeah, there's something, something delicious, which, you know, they are, of course. Um, but they're also their entire, entirely own family of things. Um, figs have their own agendas. They have important fig business to attend to during the day. Um, I love them. I loved, I loved being in, the, in their homeland. Um, Canada is not a particularly good climate for figs. So they need to be a little bit cold in the winter, but not too cold. So they do grow them in places like Vancouver and Victoria along our West Coast. But even there, they don't fruit well every year. It's, you know, we don't always get the right conditions for them. But walking around in Spain where figs belong, um, and, you know, and they, were, they were luxurious. There's really not another way to describe them. Like they were just soaking up all of that Spanish sunshine and offering us fruit, I foraged for figs a number of times, and they were delicious. Um, and it was just, you know, when you know a tree's history and you know um, its past and its importance, um, I think it's important that we respect the food that we eat. And if I'm going to put something, if I'm going to put a fruit in my mouth, I want to, you know, I want to know how that tree arrived at that place. I want to know how it got there. And there's places along the Camino where figs are planted, I'm sure they're planted, um, where they, they might have grown there by themselves, but I think some kind person, some forward-thinking gardener said, you know, there's a lot of people who walk this road and they're going to need shade and they're going to be hungry. And I loved thinking about the kindness of another gardener long before I came along because they're never going to know that I was here. They're only anticipating that I might be here. Yeah. And, you know, and I love that. And it makes me think about things in my own garden that, you know, I'm so grateful for people here who 80 years ago planted an apple tree and I sit in its shade and eat its fruit, uh, you know, or a walnut or a cherry or, you know, like, um, I can't remember who said it, but there's, um, there's an old proverb that says, a society is healthy when the old men plant trees for the young men. It's something along those lines. I'm probably getting it wrong. Um, but I love that. Somebody planted fig trees to nourish us and never got to see 
likely never got to see um, that it that it bore fruit physically and and metaphorically. Yeah, and in the book you talk about the fig may have indeed been the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, and you also there, there is yes, there are suspicions of that, and figs have a long a long history with uh, human sexuality. And I do write about that in the book. And I actually mm. thought that my editor was was going to say, oh, goodness, no, Lyndon, you can't put that in the book. Um, but they did. I love that. And you mentioned also the plant a tree, knowing your grandchildren, perhaps great-grandchildren, may one day eat from that same tree. It's such a beautiful thought. And here you are walking the way of St. James, and you say Jesus and his disciples most probably foraged roadside food as well. That was an out-of-body experience for me, quite like truly, that I had moments where I was like, because figs are mentioned so often in the Bible, and I grew up in a house where, you know, the Bible was read and the Bible was known. And in fact, like my grandmother taught me to some extent how to read out of the King James Bible when I was a little kid. And she would make me read a passage out of it, and then she would say, now explain this to me. Do you know what this means? And that might be why, you know, I grew up to be somebody who writes. Um, I, I'm not sure, but there's so many places where Jesus in, interacts with fig trees and where, you know, the apostles interact with fig trees. They are peppered all through the scriptures. And I remember reaching for pit for figs on this one particular occasion and thinking about Jesus and his disciples wandering from town to town. And because figs have been cultivated for so long, surely they must have done the same thing. And I had this moment of, I am enacting a scene from the New Testament. I am reaching for figs in a, along a dusty road in, you know, not, not particularly far from the Middle East, um, while, I, while I wander from one town to another. And I thought, Jesus did this. Jesus walked from one town to the next, he was probably hungry. He was probably tired. He was probably thinking a lot of very important thoughts. Um, or perhaps he wasn't. I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, but I remember thinking, I am enacting a scene from the New Testament, and it was surreal. It was so... It was, it was like I had fallen to, in, into one of the storyboards from my childhood Sunday school teacher. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was really... It was wild. It was... Um, it's not something I'll forget. No. And you write in the book of the hope provided by Christianity in so many lives over so many years. They're my words, not yours. But you say the idea that as a pilgrim, you could be physically near someone who actually knew Jesus in person, in the flesh, is a great motivator. And here you are imagining yourself as part of that journey. Yeah. Um yeah, it was, um, I think Jesus would have been a very interesting person to sit down and have a cup of coffee with. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. Tell us about almonds on the Camino. Oh, um, almonds were so beautiful. Um, they're, they're a gorgeous tree. And I had never eaten a fresh almond off the tree ever. Like, I've only ever bought them roasted in the grocery store because, you know, again, Canada is not the climate for almonds, let me tell you. Um, and so I, I remember seeing them and thinking, oh my goodness, these are almond trees. And I had seen them in flower in California before, which is also amazing, but I had never been somewhere when they were in, when they were producing fruit. And so 
we were we were walking out of some little town, and there was an almond tree that was loaded with fruit. And there was one particular branch that stretched out over the path, and I could actually reach it. And so I said to Carol, have you ever eaten an almond, like, right off the tree? And she said, no, I never have. And I said, me neither. We should give this a go. And she said, I concur. And so I found a rock, and I smashed it open like I was a caveman. Mm-hmm. And um, I took out – I gave Carol one, and I took one. And I think – and you'll probably, you'll probably laugh at this. I think it was one of the most delicious things I ate on the entire Camino – because we use almonds in so many different aspects of cooking and baking and everything else. I could never reconcile that, like that incredible sweetness. When you open a bottle of almond extract, there is just that, that incredible, heavy, almost cloying deliciousness that almonds produce. And I could never sort of like, you know, okay, roasted almonds, chocolate covered almonds. Yes. I like both of those things. But how is that from the same plant as this bottle of explosive sweetness that I add three drops of to to my Christmas cookies? Uh, that fresh almond off the tree tasted like almond extract. It was so sweet, and it was such an explosion of flavor in the mouth. Um, and I looked over at Carol, and her eyes were closed, and she was like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. And I don't think I even had words. I was just like, I... I need a moment to be alone with this almond and to savor this moment and never, ever forget this because it was just, it was, it was one of those, those things were like, you know, taste an almond, but no, have you ever really, really tasted an almond? Like really? And it was, and I said to the tree afterwards, that was amazing. Thank you for that. (laughs) Uh, And, and the tree said nothing because trees don't talk. And we went on our way, but I feel like the tree and I had a connection. Um, I think trees grow better when they're loved. Yeah. And I, I sent that, that tree some appreciation. I think whatever you put into the universe, you will also take from the universe. You reap what you sow, you harvest what you plant. So if the universe is actually reciprocal, which I think it is, um, I think if you put love and, and appreciation to trees, I think they feel it and I think they give it back to you. I should just remind my listeners or point out, I'm skipping through this book, right? It's beautifully written. It's it's almost a diary of a love affair with the plant life that you and I, I'm talking to my listeners here, we walk past on the Camino. We, we don't see these things. And this book is exquisite in just the way that Lind- Lyndon is talking. I can't do justice to it, to be completely honest. And Lyndon, your great knowledge is astonishing, but you can see it in the book, there is much you don't know about plants. And that's okay, because not knowing shows that you have more to learn. And that's part of the appeal. And so here you are, you're walking the Camino de Santiago, you're a week or so in, right? You're finding your rhythm, you start to get shin splints like the rest of us. So you're a real pilgrim now. You're seeing, yes. you're seeing everything that's around you. Are you more social yet? It took a while um, because you start to relax as you get into the Camino. Um, At least I did, and that was my experience. I can't speak for anyone else. Um, You sort of start to get used to what you're doing, and you get sort of accustomed to it. Um, And human beings want to connect with other human beings, even, even curmudgeons like me. And so I, you know... I try to be friendly with people. I try to be nice to people. Um, and so 
it was sometimes hard because often there's people on the Camino who don't speak the same language as you. Um, and so, you know, people that you might have a ton in common with, if you can't communicate with them, how would you ever know? So I, I was starting to be a little more social. We met, um, we met a, another Canadian, a woman named Sandy, who Carol and Sandy hit it off right away. Um, and we're, we're quite chatty with each other, which was really nice for both of them. And then we met, um, Isabel and Mark, who were, um, who are this really wonderful couple from Melbourne. Um, and they were delightful. And so, um, and then we sort of adopted them and they walked with us quite a bit. And then we collected Glenn and Sue, who are a couple from Texas and they, you know, we would walk with them a little bit. And then the next day we might walk with them, not at all, or maybe a little bit more. And as, as we went along, we gradually spent more and more time with those specific people um, we often ended up in the same coffee shop at the same time or at the same albergue. And after a little while, it was just like, these are the people who we're walking with. And it happened so gradually that I didn't realize that we were developing friendships um, because I wasn't trying to do that. I'm like, like I said, I try to be nice to people and I'd had conversations with, with several of them. And, um, but then they were becoming longer conversations and deeper conversations and more important conversations. And, and then one day Isabel referred to us, uh, as, as a little Camino family. And I kind of, I kind of stopped and went, Oh, okay. All right. I can get on board with that. Um, but it took her saying that for me to actually really articulate that. And I know some people, they make friends on the Camino and, you know, they visit each other's countries and they become best friends for life. And it's, you know, like that soul connection that Oprah always likes to talk about that I think we're all really looking for. I didn't meet anybody on the Camino that I think I'm going to be friends with this person for the rest of my life, or this person totally gets me. That is totally okay. Uh, the people that we did meet were the right people. They were the right people for that journey, for that time. I'm still sort of in touch with them. Like I could email any of them at any given moment. Um, but like, we don't, we don't talk every day, but it's nice to know that they're out there. It's nice to know that we shared, we shared this experience. Um, I did send Sandy and Mark and Isabel and Glenn and Sue all a copy of the book when it came out. Um, and I was a little bit nervous about doing that because this is nonfiction and this is a memoir and these are real people. And I also want to respect people's privacy, uh, which is also why I didn't mention Carol a whole lot in the book um, because she has her story to tell and I have mine. And yes, she's part of it, but also I wanted to give her a little breathing space as it were. Um, and so um, all of them loved the book and I was greatly relieved and Isabel sent me a beautiful email thanking me, and she said um, that it was a, a really interesting experience to see herself in the pages of somebody else's book. Um, mm. And I was really glad that it was a pleasant experience for her and not something that caused offense, um, you know, because I don't embellish anything in the book. Uh, a friend of mine said, your book would have been way funnier if you would have made stuff up. And I, and I said, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I could have been hilarious and I wasn't. Um, so, cause I just said what happened. I didn't, I didn't feel a need to, you know, yeah. to fluff it up or to add anything to it. Um, but she was disappointed because she said to me, you're funny and you're not funny in your book. 
And I, so I promised her that in, in the next, the next book, I will be an absolute riot. Um, so. <laughs> but it's the books about your, your love of the great outdoors, your deep yes. appre- appreciation and understanding and, and your oneness with nature. And that's so great. The way you sum it up in your relationship with people is, uh, you don't play well with others like porcupines, great horned owls, and black widow spiders. <laughs> Which was, yeah, those like, are all solitary things. Yeah, it's so great. Tell us about olive trees because you found the olive trees more mystical and transcendent than many of the cathedrals that you saw along the way. The olive trees were better than churches and cathedrals. They're, the olive trees were probably my favorite thing in Spain because they were grace personified. They were... There is a holiness to olives, which I think is something I actually wrote in the book. Yeah. Um, there is, there's a, it's, not an, it's not an easy thing to articulate, particularly to people who are not interested in trees. Um, but there is, the olive is a tree that human beings have held as valuable and useful for thousands and thousands of years. Um, there is even a suspicion that the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed on his last night, is not a garden in the traditional sense as we know it, but is actually an olive grove. I, I feel that on a molecular level, like I could pray in an olive grove and I don't know why, and I don't know how to really explain that, but there is, there is something about olive trees that is deeply peaceful. Like it's a peace that you can drink. Like there is something sturdy and solid and dependable and wise about them. And, you know, a single olive tree would be an experience, but to see, you know, Spain has these beautiful sort of rolling hillsides. So it's not like you're looking into a forest of them. It's these beautiful sort of um, pale green and dark green plateaus and like these undulating lines of olives in that harsh and beautiful Spanish light. And all of these great companies of olives, the only thing that I can think of to compare it to is companies of angels, because there was something about them that it felt it felt like an honor to walk among them, and I'm actually like I'm actually getting emotional thinking about it. Um, there's something olives haunt me. I think about those olive trees frequently, and I don't know I don't know how to put into words what it is that they made me feel. But it was very important, and one of the absolute best comments that I have gotten about the book was. Um, I got an email from a young man who's in his early twenties and he, and he, and we don't know each other. We don't know anything about each other. Um, and he said, um, he had gone away as a university student, uh, to Europe and he'd been in Italy and he was so deeply moved by the olive trees and he couldn't explain it. And when he came home, he tried to explain to his family about the olive trees. And so he said, but I couldn't do it until I found your book. And I read to my parents, the passage that you had written, about olive trees because he said, you actually articulated what I felt but couldn't say. So that has to be one of the highest compliments I have ever gotten. So I love that somebody else felt what I felt um, and neither of us could explain it. I have here, the, I've got the book here in front of me and I've highlighted this passage here. You write, um, I did not expect on my journey that the fruit of these trees would nourish my body while the trees themselves would nourish my soul. That's pretty good writing. Thank you. <laughs> that's pretty awesome, eh? Like, Thank you. That's totally awesome. 
Um, I was really interested to read your take on where our food comes from. Um, because you say people don't know that beans are climbers. They think that pumpkins grow on trees. Yes. Right? People don't understand the value of plants, the importance of plants. They have no idea. And, you know, like plants produce the cotton that makes their clothing. They produce the medicines that we take. They produce the food we eat. They produce the oxygen we breathe. And most people just see them as strictly a green background. And I think that's so disrespectful to the natural world that, like, there is so much to unpack out there. There is so much that plants offer us, and they ask for nothing. You know, like, wherever you go on the planet, there are plants. And they're all doing something. They all have their own agendas. They're all very busy, you know, like, I imagine plants wake up in the morning and say, all right, well, now we're going to turn sunlight into sugar and we're going to drink some water and some nutrients and we're going to do important plant stuff. And they do. And it's fabulous. And we get to be part of it and witness it and enjoy it and love it and learn from it and be mystified by it. And it is, it is an endless adventure. It is every day in the world of plants is something surprising, something new, I could learn about plants all day, every day for the rest of my life, and I still wouldn't learn all the things. And I love that. Yeah, gosh, so fantastic. Um, pilgrims listening now uh, would have sat beneath the canopy of trees by the river in Molina Seca, um, perhaps in the town square in Palace del Rey, or maybe under the canopy of trees in the main square in Azura. I think I'm right in saying those trees are pollarded. I've never heard that term before. Pollarding is an old, old practice, um, particularly in the ancient world. You see it in Europe quite a lot, probably in North Africa quite a bit, um, where trees would be, pollarding was where, uh, where large trees usually are deliberately cut in order to stimulate um, lots of very soft, supple new growth. And this was used either for fuel, as in fires, or it was used to feed wildlife, or not wildlife, excuse me, um, livestock, cattle, that kind of thing. And so it's not really a necessary practice so much anymore because a lot of things have changed in the world. Um, But it's still done in many, many parts of Europe. And you see it all along the Camino. I think I might have mentioned it in the book, but um, in uh, in Les Miserables, um, Jean Valjean, is, yeah. is a tree pruner, and he was most likely somebody who did the pollarding. Um, it's, it's a very, very old practice. I myself don't like it. Um, I think it disfigures the tree. Uh, I say that with no disrespect to people who come from cultures where that is a common practice. Um, it's not something I would do to a tree. Uh, there was also one place where, um, where the trees had been grafted their branches had been all along the boulevard the branches had been grafted together so that each tree's branches were quite literally physically joined and there was this there was an american woman who said to me very joyfully oh it's like the trees are dancing with each other and i looked at her and i said or handcuffed and i sucked all the wind out of her sails when i said that and i and she really did not appreciate that she gave me a dirty look and sort of stormed off and i went Oh, Lyndon, that was not the right thing to say. Um, and, I'm, and I never saw her again, but I'm, I'm sure that she's not forgotten me and that she's, you know, she doesn't think of me with fondness. I think 
listening to you and and the, your your great passion for uh, Flora, I don't think that she necessarily would have thought. Maybe she just had to think about it later and thought, well, that's he's thinking that because he's so passionate about it and he loves plants so much. <laughs> but you know, one thing um, I know that every pilgrim who's listening right now. Um, would know and they maybe don't see the plants and the flowers and the weeds and the trees and the birds. But the one thing they do know about is coffee. Oh yeah. <laughs> you write about the coffee, right? But I love coffee and yeah, there was, um, I do, I do write quite a bit about coffee in the book actually, yeah. as, as I'm sure as you are well aware. Yeah. 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 Uh, Cause I, I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it? You you head off in the morning and you you get a coffee when you start, and then you're sort of thinking, okay, when am I going to get my next coffee? And, yes. And you see the plastic chairs in the street, so you turn a corner and you look ahead and you see the little town, and there you see the plastic chairs in the street, and say, yes, coffee, coffee. Um, I have done I have done terrible things for coffee. Um, no, I haven't. That's I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but. I'm easily bribed with coffee and I don't need it. There was like some people need coffee to get going in the morning. I don't need it. I'm one of those obnoxiously cheery morning people. I just pop out of bed like a piece of toast. So like, I don't, I don't need coffee, but I love it. There was a period in my life where I didn't drink it for about three months and it didn't make any difference. I just missed it. So like, you know, people say, Oh, you have more energy if you don't drink coffee and you know, it's better for your body. And I'm like, no, no, we just just give me the coffee. It'll be fine. And all of the coffee in Spain, I don't know if you found this. I found the coffee in Spain delicious and gorgeous and beautiful and thought-worthy and praiseworthy, and there was never enough of it. It was, I want gallons of Spanish coffee, um, and that is not how they serve it. So, <laughs> you, you know, and, and I don't, like... I remember, you know, like Australia has very, very good coffee shops, as I recall. Yeah. Um, you know, like I never had any trouble getting a cup of coffee in Australia. North Americans, we like our coffee served basically in a cauldron. Like we drink large volumes of coffee. I don't know if that's just a cultural thing and how we do it. We like to get a big, a big cup of coffee to go. Uh, we have important things to do. We have people to see. We have places to be. We need coffee. And so North Americans, we grab our coffee and off we roll. Yeah. And, you know, and Europeans think that the civilized thing to do is that you should, you should sit down, don't drink more than you need. Uh, I'm going to serve you coffee in what looks like a shot glass. And it is something you will crave for the rest of the day. And large coffees are not available. Coffee to go is not a thing in Spain. So you sit down in a coffee shop and you have to, you have to drink the coffee in, you know, you're drinking out of a thimble basically. And, you know, like I said to Isabel one morning, if I order a small, they'll probably bring me a damp cloth. Um, you know, like, so there, there I am. Like I just, and I started to get really grumpy about it. And, and several people have said to me um, that it was very unbecoming of me in the book to, you know, to complain as I did um, and sound like the entitled Westerner that I am. Um, because I started to get ticked off that I'm like, I don't think I'm asking for the world here. I had to walk 20 kilometers today. I just want a really large cup of coffee. Like, I don't think anything about that is unreasonable, but the fact that it's not being offered to me is unreasonable. And 
you know, this is a civilized place. Spain is a civilized country. Why in the hell can I not get an extremely ridiculously large serving of coffee? I will pay perfectly good money for a large volume of coffee. And it just, it never, it never came about. Um, although actually I should say on the way home, uh, Carol and I flew through Amsterdam. We had, I think two hours or four hours in the Amsterdam airport and there's a Starbucks in the Amsterdam airport. And like, I turned to Carol and I, it was like a scene in a film where like the beam of light shines down on the Starbucks <laughs> and the hallelujah chorus began to play. And I said to Carol, Carol, would you like an extremely large coffee? And she smiled and said, I know you would. And I said, I will be right back. And I literally spent the last euros in my wallet to procure two very large coffees for us. It was glorious. It was like the first very large coffee that I'd had in about eight weeks. Um, my God, that coffee was good. I damn near smoked a cigarette after that coffee. Um, it, it was just... That was a high point of the journey was the first large coffee afterwards. I'm not super proud to tell you that, but that's the absolute truth. That is so great. That's so great. I'm going to read a quote um, from the book. Uh, you say, over the course of our journey, I would walk through ancient forests of oak and chestnut that were more beautiful than any of the cathedrals meant to house the presence of God. I felt more connected to humanity walking in old, dusty trail than I ever have in any city I've ever been in. And most of the insights the Camino gave me did not arrive until well after I got home. It was a slow-burning candle. I was hungry and tired a lot of the time as I walked. I mostly thought about eating and sleeping while I was there. I was sure I wasn't thinking many profound thoughts. I was wrong about that. I came home stronger and more self-assured than I have ever been. My tolerance for mediocrity and trivial things has been greatly diminished. My appreciation for the beautiful life I live is increased exponentially. The Camino is a sharp blade. It cuts through to the quick and exposes some things good and some bad. Who would have expected that a time-worn old path across an ancient land could offer so much. I wonder, Lyndon, are you surprised that you found this awakening of sorts? Yes. I, yes, I think so. Um, because, you know, one person actually said to me at one point, you didn't do the Camino with the right intentions. Your heart wasn't in the right place. You're not supposed to do it frivolously. Um, and I think she felt that I was disrespectful to the Camino, which I don't, I don't think that I was, but certainly she's welcome to her opinion. Um, I was surprised by that because really I did just go um, on a whim. I really did. And I, and I know that that sounds foolish. Um, but, you know, my friend Carol said, do you want to go? Would you do this with me? And I said, yeah. Like it was not, it had never been on my bucket list. It had never been a lifelong ambition that I had. So I didn't have any expectations. So... I, I wasn't thinking that, you know, when this is all over, I'm going to be way better. I'm going to be Linden 2.5 and be better, faster, stronger, more compatible. Um, I didn't think that. I didn't have – I think I set the bar really low. Um, you know, like whatever happens, happens. And if I see something great or experience something great, I will certainly pack that up and take it home with me and carry it with me. Um, but I, I, didn't, I didn't have any um, – there was no ambition involved with the Camino that, you know, 
I will overcome something. I will find what I'm looking for. I will, I will have some sort of epiphany. I didn't, because I didn't think any of that, I wasn't expecting anything like that to happen later. So it was, it was interesting that afterwards I was like, oh, well, maybe that did have some effect. So, but it, it took a little while to arrive at that conclusion. Yeah, the slow-burning candle, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I suppose when you, you also wrote, I came home stronger and more assured than I've ever been, that must have been pleasing in itself. It was. I can't say that it lasted terribly long. Um, I did the Camino in, in 2017, and I think for about a year following, I was just like, um, you know, uh, no, t- no tolerance for any, for anything, you know, banal or trivial. And then as we do, we, we gradually get back to who we are and where we've been. And some things you remember and you carry and you take with you like the olive trees. And there's other things that, you know, actually a couple of people have said to me this year, Oh yeah. And then you did, you know, I, I loved what you wrote about this. And I go, Oh yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Did I write about that in the book? I did, didn't I? Um, so, so it was really interesting because I just, I really did not have, have an expectation that that would be the case. Well, what about your friendship with Carol though now? Oh, um, my friendship with Carol is, is as good as it ever was. Although we do now find ourselves living in, in different provinces. Um, I got an email from her, uh, maybe two days ago. Um, we are definitely still in touch. Um, uh, we, we have not, there's been, um, really no opportunity to visit her, um, because of the pandemic. Uh. So, so it hasn't been, um, it hasn't been easy to, uh, to get together, to gather, to, you know, to do the normal things because Carol would so often say, you know, like when you're in Calgary, um, let me know and and come over and, and Dan and I would love to have you for dinner and I would love to go for a walk with you. And, and like, so, so normally we would be much more connected than we have been in the past year or so, but it, it just wasn't an option. So I am hoping to be in Calgary in October. Um, and I'm hoping that I will get to go and see her. Um, she had a little bit of an episode with her health recently. Um, and so I, you know, I want to make sure she's all right. Mm. And, you know, and so, but yet she and I are, are, we are still absolutely in touch and uh, Carol is quite a bit older than I am. And so I feel, um, I feel a certain, I don't want to, ownership is not the right word, but a certain protectiveness of her. She is not a blood relative, but I hold her in like the same esteem that I would like perhaps a really cherished aunt. Um, She's very dear to me. So I, I feel like, Trees and and certain humans in my life um, that are, shall we say, of a certain vintage. Um, I always want to sort of protect them and, you know, screen them in and cover them with bubble wrap and keep them safe from the world. So great. Look, I have only time for one more question. Um, Okay. You've been so generous with your time. It's just been magic talking to you. Honestly, the book is exquisite. I absolutely loved it. You, you, are, you are my favorite interviewer so far, Dan, I have to tell you. <laughs> you overheard someone say, every step is a prayer, but you didn't really appreciate it. You said, oh, you didn't really all like all of that kind of, you know, um, live life, love stuff yes. that you heard and saw along the Camino. Like, now when you think back, 
what does the Camino mean to you now? How do you sum it up when someone asks you about it? What does it mean to you now? That is such a good question. And I'm sure that as soon as we disconnect here, 20 minutes from now, I'm going to think of a really good response. Um, I, I greatly value the Camino, but when somebody says that word, when somebody speaks about that journey, I am instantly transported back to that sun-baked hillside, that, that one in particular, where there were, I couldn't count the number of olives and that of olive trees and that particular moment. And I remember looking down at my feet and one of my, one of my shoes was untied and they were both covered in dust. And I had this moment where I'm looking out at these olive trees and I said to myself, I am fully alive in this moment. And that's what, that is my most vivid memory of, of the Camino is the olive trees and that dusty, sun-saturated moment. And so I associate the Camino with life, with vitality. Um, and I, I think that's what it means to me now is that I will always, for the rest of my life, for however long I might live, when somebody speaks of the Camino and asks, what does it mean to you? What did, what did it do for you? If nothing else, it gave me a moment in time where I, I have a measuring rod, I have a gauge where I was fully committed to that moment. I was fully immersed in that space. I wasn't thinking about the future. I wasn't thinking about the past. I wasn't any of those things. I was, you know, it's such a cliche to talk about being in the moment. And I was actually for once fully in the moment and I was able to appreciate it. And we're not always lucky enough to find ourselves in that space. So that's I think that's what it means to me is it, it's, if nothing else, it is one shining moment in time when I was fully alive. There is so, so much more in the book. We've only just touched on it in this, these last two episodes. I, I just wanted to congratulate you, Lyndon, for having the courage to write such a personal account of your journey. Sure, it's a gardener's guide and that aspect of the pilgrimage is fascinating for someone like me because, as I said, I... I didn't notice things like that. And I can't wait to go back to seek out all the plants and the flowers. There was one day walking out of Leon and I was walking through this little town and, and there were some flowers at the front of a, of a house and they were gorgeous. And there was a little old lady standing on the side of the road where I was and we were looking across the street. And I said, um, oh, well, the flowers are beautiful, you, you know, like pointing across the street. And she said... Uh, they're my flowers. And she was so old. I wrote in my notebook that night that when I put my arm around her, it was like, it felt like a, a pillowcase full of coat hangers. She was so yes. thin and so light and so fragile. And she smelled like dust. But here she was with this big, broad smile. And it was the flowers. Yes. It was the flowers that yes. had brought us together. This this moment, just a, a speck of moment in time in my life. But it was the flowers that had brought us together. And How it, wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. And here I was reading your book thinking, ah, oh, this is just so magic. And it was a perspective of the Camino that I hadn't seen and I hadn't expected 
So thank you. It's a delight. Um, and oh, I hope, what a pleasure it's been. Yeah, I hope our paths cross one day. Lyndon? I would be so delighted. Yeah. I, have, I have every intention of returning to Australia to visit again uh, when we don't have a global health crisis occurring. Yeah. Um, and I would love to buy you a drink. This has been such a treat. I look forward to that day very, very much. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Buen Camino. Thank you, Dan. Buen Camino. My guest this week was the Canadian author and gardener, Lyndon Penner. The book is called The Way of the Gardener, Lost in the Weeds Along the Camino de Santiago. My quote this week was from Tennyson, the poet. If I had a flower for every time I thought of you, I could walk through my garden forever. And the quote I read in the interview there from Lyndon himself, written in the pages of his book. Over the course of our journey, I would walk through ancient forests of oak and chestnut that were more beautiful than any of the cathedrals meant to house the presence of God. I felt more connected to humanity walking an old dusty trail than I have in any city I've ever been in. But most of the insights the Camino gave me did not arrive until well after I had got home. It was a slow-burning candle. I was hungry and tired a lot of the time as I walked, I mostly thought about eating and sleeping, and while I was there, I was sure I wasn't thinking many profound thoughts. I was wrong about that. I came home stronger and more self-assured than I have ever been. My tolerance for mediocrity and trivial things has been greatly diminished. My appreciation for the beautiful life I live is increased exponentially. The Camino is a sharp blade. It cuts through to the quick and exposes things, some good and some bad. Who would have expected that such a time-worn old path across an ancient land could offer so much? Taking the time to stop to savour the beauty of God's creation is what makes pilgrimage worthwhile. You can find Lyndon's book on Amazon, Lyndon Penner. The book is called The Way of the Gardener, Lost in the Weeds Along the Camino de Santiago. You'll love it. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino. Buen Camino.